0: Sometimes the best way to remind ourselves of deep truths is to tell it in the way a child can hear it, isn't it? I think every time I pick up a story about Christmas for my children, I remind myself of the simplicity of the story, and yet at the same time of the profound depth of the story. Christmas, if it is about anything, it is about the glory of God. Christmas is first and foremost about the glory of God. The incarnation is a profound moment. In human history, it's a profound moment of a much larger story of God's persistent love towards us, God's persistent offering of grace towards us, God's consistent pouring out of undeserved mercy towards us. The incarnation is a decisive moment in the story of God's relationship with His creation. And it began way back when, in fact, it began before the creation of all creation. It began when there was only God, when there was no time, when there was no space, when there was only God, and He made a plan with Himself of what He would do. But in terms of its relationship with us, it began way back when in the Garden of Eden. And it's continued here in this room today. The story that began in the Garden of Eden of God with His special creation, humanity, is being written in human hearts today in this room And that story really begins in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. And if we're going to understand the incarnation, if we're going to be able to see it for all its fullness, all its beauty, for the treasure that Christmas really is, we've got to go back and we've got to see the fullness of the story. In the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, we find the situation of God in perfect relationship with His special creation, humanity, with our forefathers, Adam and Eve, We're told that there was no shame in their relationship with each other or in their relationship with God. There was just total transparency. There was total love. There was oneness. It was humanity within the created world that God had made walking with God in the garden. Think about that for a second. No shame. No war. Just relationship and peace and fullness of heart. God. Walking with man in the garden, in the cool of the day. I think there's something when I read those opening chapters of Genesis that rings very true inside my soul. And I'm willing to bet that inside each of your souls, there's something inside of you that says, yes, I long for that. I long for the day where there is peace, where there is no shame, where there's no war, where there's no strife, where there's no toil, where there's just love fullness of love, in the context of relationship with one another and with God, and it's right and it's good. Adam and Eve had that. They're in the garden. They existed in relationship with God, fully known and fully loved. Just as Adam and Eve had it, our, lo- our hearts long for it. But if you know the story of God's people, if you've read the account of Genesis, or perhaps if you've heard of it, you know that that perfection did not last very long, Adam and Eve were tempted by a serpent, tempted by Satan to rebel against God. God had given them one command, and as long as they submitted to God's authority in their life, they would continue to exist in this perfect state where there was no toil, where there was no strife, where there was just love. But they were tempted, and they fell to that temptation. Had they simply obeyed God's simple command for their life, paradise would have been theirs, and paradise would have been ours. But they rejected God's command, and in so doing, they rejected God. The result was catastrophic. The intimacy with God that we were designed for, the intimacy of being fully known and fully loved, was lost. And it's really interesting when you read that story of Genesis, before God comes down and even speaks to Adam and Eve, we notice the very first thing that was lost was their innocence. They had made fig leaves to cover themselves because they suddenly were experiencing shame. You see, they knew that they were fully known before a sovereign God over them. And before their rebellion against God, they had always lived in full trust of God, knowing that He loved them. He loved them fully. There was nothing they could bring to God that God would say, I cannot stand that. And yet now, all of a sudden, they had introduced shame, covering themselves, hiding from God. But there in that moment, God does something utterly surprising. The book of Genesis God does something so surprising that sometimes we read over it and we forget how surprising this is. God doesn't do what He could have done or what He should have done. You see, God is holy. Holiness cannot be in the presence of rebellion. What God had every right to do, because He's a just God, is to cast Adam and Eve out from the garden, out from His presence, forever without hope. That's justice. Those of us who long for justice can understand that. Rebellion cannot live in the presence of a holy God. But God doesn't do what He could have done. God doesn't do what He should have done. Rather, God speaks a promise into the ears of His special creation. And there in the garden as He's standing before Adam and Eve, as He's looking at these beautiful, perfect creations that He had made who had chosen to rebel against Him, He looks at them and He makes a promise before He casts them out. He said, I'm sending somebody. One day, I'm sending someone who's going to crush the serpent's head. I'm sending someone who's going to claim total victory over sin and temptation. He will crush the serpent's head, and he goes further. He says, that one that comes to crush the serpent's head, his heel will be bruised. He will not leave that fight, not in pain. He will be hurt in the process. The promise from God was an anchor for all humanity. Adam and Eve found themselves after that moment cast out from the presence of God, but, but they lived in hope. Though all of a sudden they were introduced into the very world that you and I now continue to live in, a world that's full of pain, a world that's full of war, a world that's that's full of strife, a world that's full of shame, God's people clinged to the promises of God. One day, God will set this right. One day, one will come who will crush the serpent's head." As the generations came and went, God's people clung to that promise. And God continued to send messengers. This is the story that each of you fall into today. If you're here in this room and you're hearing this story, you have to know the chapter has begun long, long before Christ ever came. God sent prophets. They were his messengers, and these prophets continued to to re-promise the original promise. The promise was that someone was coming, and then the prophets came, and they said, we don't want you to miss him. So God gave the prophets words, words to declare, to say, here's what to look for when the promised one comes. I'm going to give you all the vivid detail you need so that when he shows up and when he accomplishes the work I gave him to do, you don't miss him. You're without excuse because the prophets have come and they have foretold it all. Here's what you should look for. And so the prophet Isaiah tells us that we should have our eyes out for a child who would be born. To a virgin, Isaiah tells us that a child would be born whose name would be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. Oh, isn't that interesting? Here we have a child, the the promised child that would be born in the form of humanity and yet would assume the title Almighty God. How could that be? But God's people heard the words of the prophet and said, we're getting more clarity. We're waiting for one who will fulfill that. The prophets continued to look forward and give more detail. They told where, when, and to whom he would be born. Micah tells us he would be born in a little town of Bethlehem. If you're not sure of geography, that's a small village on the outskirts of Israel. Not many people are born there. But God's prophets said, when I send my one to crush the serpent's head, this is where he'll be born. Jacob writes that he would be born into the tribe of Judah. There were twelve tribes of, Ju- of Israel, but only one, tribe of Ju- one, only one tribe of Israel would claim the promised one, and it would be the tribe of Judah. The prophet Daniel goes so far as to tell us that the promised one would come while the second temple was still standing. That temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. The prophets go further, and they tell us about the Christ's life and ministry, Isaiah, again, in Isaiah 53, tells us, again, giving vivid details so that we would not miss Him when He came, that the promised one, the one who would crush the serpent's head, would take the form of a suffering servant, that He would be pierced for our transgressions, Hundreds of years before Christ ever came, these words were written, that He would be pierced for our transgressions, that He would be crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. Sound familiar? We're told that this Savior would be counted as a rebel and numbered among the criminals, though He would be without sin. The prophet's giving vivid detail. Don't miss it. The one is coming. Keep your eyes fixed on the promise of God. And God's people waited. But there's more. This one that was to come not only would mend the relationship between God and man and restore a relationship where there was no longer shame between us and God. He would clear that. He would bridge the chasm that existed between us and God. But he would go even further. When God's promised one came, not only would he make man right with God, but he would establish a kingdom that would have no end. This kingdom would begin to take over the entire earth as people from every tongue, every nation, every language, and every tribe across the globe would find themselves wrapped up into this kingdom because the child would grow to be a king, and he would be sovereign over his sheep. God promised that a kingdom would be established, a kingdom for all nations. This would be a kingdom that would spread to all people from every background into every nation. It would transcend every culture and every cultural value. The kingdom of the promised one would be able to go to every nation and every cultural background and ideology, and it would spread, and it would spread, and nothing would extinguish that fire in this kingdom, those who were far from God would be wrapped up in the grace of God, forgiven for their sin, and they would be called children of God once again. Despite their rebellion, despite their sin, an atonement would be made that would restore their relationship with God. The prophets spoke for generations, constantly calling us to keep our eyes open. And then, suddenly, and without warning, about 400 years before the birth of Jesus, the final Old Testament prophet spoke his final word. And God's people waited in hope, in eager anticipation, expectantly for the one that was coming. They waited with their eyes towards the stars. They waited with their eyes on the Word of God, clinging to the promises of God, for the one that God said would come that would crush
1: the serpent's head. Hello everyone, we are the two family and our reading comes from Luke 2, 1 through 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee Can we give a hand for our worship team, all 50 of them? Thank you, guys. They, they are, they, you, guys have done, you guys are doing a fantastic job. Fantastic job. Uh, folks, if you guys don't know me, my name is Kenson. I have the honor of being the pastor of our Bridgeport location. Uh, Merry Christmas to all of you guys. Um, as Rafe has already started off, and reminding us in a very powerful way that God has made a promise. He has made a promise. And what I want to let you guys know here is that tomorrow on Christmas is when God makes this promise a reality that the Savior King has come. You know, in the passage that was just read from Luke chapter 2, it's a contrast of two kings that we read in, very, in verse 1 that we're introduced to Caesar Augustus, nephew of Julius Caesar, and his name Augustus meant majestic and highly revered. And in this point in history, there was no greater king, there was no greater and more expansive kingdom than the Roman Empire. Most of the known world was under Roman rule, and thus Augustus was praised as the emperor who brought... Peace all across to all people. That in everyone's mind, Caesar Augustus would have been the greatest ruler, the greatest king to have ever lived. But what Luke does in his chapter here is that he tells all of us hold up. I got some news for you. A greater king has come tonight. And Luke does this in many ways in how he notes in these verses. He first says in verse 14 that the angels say of his birth, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. Now, Augustus, he brought political peace, but this greater king will come to bring a greater peace, that this child will bring peace between men and God. That's the peace he'll bring. And we also see in these verses that the name of David is mentioned, the city of David, the house and lineage of David, the city of David again. This reference to King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, a king after God's own heart. This is a pronouncement that God God's king has arrived. And finally, when it says in verse 14, glory to God in the highest, the reason that this was a glorious moment wasn't just because of the fulfillment of numerous and hundreds of prophecies that Rafe was talking about, which would have been amazing, and it's not so much because of the virgin birth, which would have been amazing, and it's not because angels show up, which is amazing. The reason this is a glorious moment is because sleeping in the manger was the king who would be above all all kings that this would be the king that would crush the serpent's head that will that will have a light that will never ever go out the king that will reign for all eternity that the baby was god in the flesh emmanuel god with us but here's the thing why does this king come in such a lowly way jesus was born to mary and joseph Mary, a teenager, no more than 17 years old, and engaged to Joseph, a blue-collar guy. And Mary and Joseph were as poor as poor can be. For a Jewish birth, like for Jesus here, it was very customary to offer a lamb as a sacrifice to the temple, and most Jewish families could do that. But the law of Moses gave exceptions to the poorest of poor. If you could not afford a lamb, then you can give two turtle doves, which have only cost pennies. Mary and Joseph gave that sacrifice. Jesus was born born into a poor family. Also, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a small town with just a few hundred people, an insignificant place with insignificant people. Also, for this birth, Jesus didn't come in with first-class amenities. His crib was a trough with some hay in it. And for his birth, Jesus didn't have royalty visit him. The first people to celebrate his birth were shepherds. These people were so low on the social ladder that their testimony would not be admissible in court. Why would the king of all kings come so low? It's because when Jesus came, he did not come to be a domineering king. He came to be our humble king. He came to be our shepherd king, the savior king, the crucified king. A king who was born not to exploit us, but to die for us. He was born not to be served, but to serve. That he was born without fanfare, without trumpets, without the press releases. He was born unnoticed to the entire world. Why? It's so that we would know that our king welcomes all into his presence from the king atop of his palace to the shepherds in the field to the lepers and tax collectors he would be the king to all people on christmas day the greater king has come friends let me ask you are you ready for this king it doesn't mean having gifts ready or spending time with family and friends, as nice as that is. It's not even first caring about the poor. Being ready for Christmas means being ready to worship our Savior King, a Savior who has done it all and who has paid it all. That whenever you read throughout the gospel narratives of the birth of Jesus Christ, they always start off with praise and worship. Mary here's the birth of Jesus, sings a song. Zachariah, the father of John the Baptist, is silenced for a little bit, but once he comes to his senses, he starts praising. When angels make the announcement, they praise God. When Simeon hears the announcement, he praises God. And over and over and over, worship is the only thing that we are to respond with on this Christmas day. God doesn't need anything from us. All we need to do is worship and thank him for, because he has done it all and paid it all. You know, there's a story of a pastor who went to go visit a woman in great financial need. Now, the church was able to raise a lot of money for this woman, and the pastor had the honor of bringing this gift to this woman's house. So he goes to this woman's house with gift in hand, knocks on a door, and no answer. So he waits there for a few more minutes, knocks on the door, waits, no one's coming, knocks again. He's like, all right, I'll come back another day. So he comes back the next day, does the same thing, knocks on the door, no answer, Fine. He comes back the next day again, does the same thing, and over and over again, he's knocking on the door. No one's answering, and he's starting to wonder, does she even live here? I'm pretty sure she lives here, but she's, no one's answering the door. Well, on that Sunday, after the church service, he sees this woman, and as soon as he says amen and the service is done, he makes a beeline right to her and says, the whole week, I've been looking for you. I've been trying to visit you, you know, but, but you weren't home. And then she said, well, pastor, What day did you come? Almost every day this week during the afternoon. And with embarrassment, she says, you know, Pastor, I was home, and I actually heard the knocking, but I didn't open the door because I thought it was the landlord coming for the rent. Many people are going to miss Christmas tomorrow because they think that God is like a landlord coming for the rent that he's coming to make a demand, that he's coming to take from us, and many of us here will not open the door for him because of this, that some of us sitting here right now, you have closed your heart to him because of this, that you think that all God cares about is this list of do this and don't do this, that whether you've been naughty or you've been nice, that instead of being a God to love, he's a God that you fear. But I am here to tell you that the good news of Christmas is that Jesus has not come to demand the rent, he has come to pay the bill, that God does not come to say that this is what you must do for me by sending Jesus on this Christmas day. He tells all of us, look at what I'm going to do for you. This is why in the Gospel of John, it says that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. He has come to save the world. Our Savior King has come. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we are so grateful that God that on the eve of Christmas. We have a chance to be reminded that your son did not come to take, but he came to, gave, to give his life. That he did not come to enslave us, but he came to free us. And Father, we are so grateful and thankful that we as a sinful and rebellious people, people who would run from you, On Christmas Day, we see you running after us. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.